0: up with keyboardist and lawyer Mark Avsek from Donia Iris and the Cruisers, also the band Breathless, and also he was in Wild Cherry, you know the band that did Play That Funky Music White Boy? Yeah, he was a session musician in that band and that's how he got his start. And I thought it was fascinating just to kind of get the background of a session musician and how that all began. And it's interesting. There, there actually are a lot of artists. That's how, that's how they started. You know,
1: it's interesting. We think about the famous people, right? The singers and lead guitarists, the the folks who who become famous and that are the house, household names. But session musicians are like the backbone of the industry. That you know, these these are really talented people who have learned how to play instruments. They they know what they're doing. And one of my favorite things is is when session musicians get together and they. Like Toto, they put a band together and, you know, it, it's about as professional as it gets, right? These are professional people who know what they're doing, who put this together. And so it's really good to highlight the things that people who were, and, and Absec was at one point, you know, a session musician, you know, he then moved on from there, but, but was that at one point. And it's really good to sort of pay attention to that.
0: Yeah, and he said he just wanted to be a songwriter for a period there and really... Produce some good songs. Spend a lot of time in the studio. And put together a collective effort. But then. He was sued for one of his most famous songs. The song called Aliyah, Which was on the first record. He was sued and said that he somehow copied that song. Which he didn't. And spent all his money fighting to prove he didn't. And that's when he said, you know what? I'm going to become a lawyer now. We also had this conversation about you reach a stage in your life where you switch over and you move into a different stage. And I think we all have that in our lives. But it's fascinating to hear this this session musician that started one route, hit midpoint of his career, and decided to switch. And I think we all do that. And I think a lot of artists do that. They just don't do it as dramatically. They They have phases, you know, like Lady Gaga. Oh, I'm in my, I am the crazy phase, and now I'm going to sing with Tony Bennett. And you know, even Madonna had stages like that. I feel like all artists have some kind of changing stage in their career just to stay relevant,
1: yeah, I think you're right. a lot of a lot of art, you know, artists who keep going for years inevitably morph. They go from one thing to another, and it's sometimes it's driven by they want to stay relevant. Sometimes it's driven by just their own personal interests. And I think that's part of the connection here with AVSEC, right? It was his personal interest in fighting for fighting in the lawsuit for Aaliyah that led him into an interest in law and eventually goes to law school and, and then uh, becomes a, you know, an attorney who's um, handling things like copyright and trademark and entertainment law. And, you know, that's another side, right? So this is a guy who who represents some of the sides of the music industry that aren't a lot of times thought of. So we talk about he he was a session musician, he was a backing musician, he played in bands, and he wasn't, you know, so we, so people know who Donny Iris was, but they don't necessarily know who the Cruisers were, right? And then he goes on to become an attorney, and I mean, <laughs> attorneys are a big part of the music industry. You know, I think of the case was it about, well, it would have been five years ago when Sam Smith had the song "Stay with Me," and uh, you know he he then later gave credit to Tom Petty because it sounded so much like "I Won't Back Down." And the story from Tom Petty was they caught it when it was on the way out. I remember I I I'm paraphrasing here, but Petty said something the effect of you know a lot of times you catch this stuff before it even makes it out, and we caught it, and we contacted Sam Smith's folks and. And they were very magnanimous about this and oh yeah, you know what, you know, uh, it does sound the same and whether it was and and I think uh, uh, Petty called it a musical accident, right? You know, you just have melodies in your head and things, they come out similarly and it wasn't like Smith was copying, but it ended up sounding the same. But, you know, I mean, attorneys are a part of that. You're you're ready to go to court. You're ready to to litigate or you're ready to at least, you know, that's who your people contact their people. Well, those people are oftentimes the attorneys who represent this stuff. And so it's interesting to to hear from somebody who's played these these kinds of lesser known roles in the music industry.
0: Yeah. And he shares also a passion that you have as well, which he's also been teaching at Case for 17 years and he also started talking about that he's in the midst of writing a book regarding music and sound and, and how it began and, and all that. So he's also trying to figure out a way to express some of the expertise that he's learned, not only being a musician and a lawyer and trying to articulate that. And I sense that when I hear you teach and the things that you do, you as well are trying to articulate these theories And make them available so people understand that the things they see and do every day, (laughs) there's patterns behind them. and, And there's a reason as humans we're drawn to that.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a big part of study of popular culture, whether we study music or film or television or sports or you name it. Looking at the formulas, looking at the patterns and looking at the history, right? That the things that we know and we take for granted that we think, okay, this is just how life is. Well, that was constructed by a set of choices that various individuals and organizations and nations and institutions made over time. And, you know, things were different. And then things developed and patterns developed. And we look at those patterns and we can say, you know, uh, well, this is what a sitcom is like. And this, this, and this, and this. And this this is what tends to be in a pop record. And this, 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 and this. And, And that's a lot of what the study of popular culture does. And I think in my case, yet it was an avenue. I was interested in music, I was interested in uh, script writing, all kinds of other things, and I just, whether it was a, you know, the lack of opportunity, lack of a certain type of ambition to get there, I found my calling, so to speak, and I'm gonna study this stuff and record this stuff, and uh, as like, record it in terms of history and culture, and that's provided an opportunity to do that, and I think that, as you said, it's a way of sort of, to, you know, hey, People, you can learn about this stuff. You, you, you can you can enjoy the stuff and still see all of these other parts of it as well.
0: Yeah, it was really fun to talk with them. You know, on Tunesmate we have title title. So on the podcast, I mentioned to him, I said we have this title title, and I noticed that Donny Iris and the Cruisers' highest charting single is called My Girl, and I was <laughs> like, you know, we have title title. You know, Temptations have My Girl, and before I could get to this kind of joke about well which one would you you pick for title title he instantly went into a discussion about well you know you can't copyright a title and so i wasn't able to kind of get it out there i wanted him to vote on it so it was it was kind of humorous that title title kind of Shot off this this conversation about copyright and titling, but I did use it as an avenue to, to say that at Tunes Mate we're always trying to introduce people to new music, and I we got into a conversation about what he would recommend. Now this week on Tunes Mate, we have title title can't stop loving you Phil Collins and can't stop loving you Van Halen. Which way did you vote?
1: Uh, I voted Van Halen. I love Phil Collins, but i I love that Van Halen song enough that it put it over the top for me
0: yeah it was really hard for me you know I'm a huge Van Halen fan there's just something with that Phil Collins song though I don't know what it is so I voted the other way which is probably opposite of what you thought I would do but I was trying to see if uh, Mark would would go that way and I just never got there but it is interesting that music is all around us and I really enjoyed the the, the AVSEC conversation, and these are the type of things that we hope to keep bringing you to TunesMate tunes, and and keep you thinking about music in another way. So we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Let's move over to Mark AVSEC and enjoy this conversation. All right, well, welcome to Tunes, mate. And we're really excited today to have Mark AVSEC here, extraordinaire keyboardist, and many other things with us. Appreciate you being on the line today, Mark.
2: I'm delighted to do so.
0: Awesome. So we knew each other from way back when, when just the internet was starting to blossom and and things were starting to come online. And I know a little bit of your story about how you got wrapped up into the music industry, but how did it all start? I mean, for people that don't know your career from the beginning how did you get involved in music
2: well that's a really long story i'll give you the short version (laughs) okay I, uh, i started when i was four years old a slovenian kid from east 61st street st clair so i started on the accordion my grandfather gave it to me one thing led to another i started playing classical accordion which is Believe it or not, there's classical, very difficult, challenging concertos for accordions. And I was competing in competitions, and I was the Ohio State accordion champion in my relative age group when I was about nine years old. And then I, um, you know, the Beatles happened, and the accordion wasn't so hip, and I transitioned to organ, mainly a B3, Hammond B3 and piano fast forward many years I was trying to make it music out of high school uh, playing in clubs during high school ended up being a session musician and one of the songs I I was called in to play on was called play that funky music white boy which for wild cherry which became a big hit and I was asked to join the band and then we started touring and uh I really wanted to write songs so I um I was in a band called Breathless, which was a big Cleveland band, but really I wanted to write songs, so I started a band called Donnie Iris and the Cruisers, and I began to write all the band's songs and produce the band's records. It was really sort of my vehicle. Of course, Donnie was a big part of it, and we were partners. And Donnie and I had met during the waning days of Wild Cherry, and we sort of uh, conspired to Create this band and this sound, and I began to stack Donnie's voice a lot in the recording studio, which led to a song called Aaliyah and Love is Like a Rock. And so, I really kind of for a time there became a producer that was somewhat in demand, and I was producing a lot of tracks. I ended up getting songs recorded by Bon Jovi. recorded a song that was, or wrote a song that was on their first record, and ultimately, Carlos Santana recorded the song of mine as well, as well as some other people. And I got sued for a song I wrote for Donny Iris. The Alia was the song. It was a, a frivolous lawsuit. It's not frivolous. It was non-meritorious. I, had, I didn't steal the song, never heard the plaintiff song, never could have heard the plaintiff song, but the plaintiff's contingency fee lawyer uh, was very aggressive and sued us. And um, I wouldn't settle with the guy because uh, I, I knew I didn't steal anything. So I won the lawsuit. Donnie and I won the lawsuit. Went on for three years. It was a jury trial. But I lost everything the song made paying our lawyers. So that got interested in copyright law. And I ended up becoming a lawyer music industry, as well as other kinds of creative content and things involving intellectual property. And so now I'm a partner with Benish, and I'm vice chair of the Intellectual Property Group. And we still play shows with Donnie Iris. I'm happy to say we've been together all these years. I don't even know how many years. say 40 <laughs> years at this point. And we still love each other. And we're playing the Roxino in December, two shows, December 14th and December 21st. We have a number of shows already booked for next year. So uh, you just got my history in like five
0: minutes. That's amazing. That's like the, the Cliff Notes musician abbreviated version. I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, I think that if, if we put a backbeat behind that, that could be a song, Mark. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. there. But that's that's a really incredible career, how you've been able to weave between all those things. And you hit on so many points there that, like you said, could probably be an hour podcast, yet alone for just one of those things. But as you kind of weave through all that and you were producer and you wrote songs for, for other people, I mean, were there certain things that stood out to you as you went through that journey? I mean, was there a period where you really enjoyed writing that you decided that I'm going to spend some time in this direction and I'm going to go down this path or how did, how did you decide at those those crossing points which direction to go?
2: Well, I certainly couldn't have. You know, you, you read a lot, of, or you, I've seen at least, somebody talks about their life. Schopenhauer, who was a philosopher, said you'd, you could never really, you know, plot out someone's life because so much of it is just happenstance. I mean, mm-hmm. you have a goal in mind and you attack that goal, as everybody should. And then life throws things at you and sends you curves and you react. And so other things happen. There was a point in my life where all I wanted to be was a producer and a songwriter. And I was extremely happy for a good two years of my life in the Donnie heydays. This was would have been, um, you know, like uh, beginning the early part of 1980, maybe the latter part of 1979 into, through like 1983, you know, like a two, three year period, Mm -hmm. where I was in Jerry's recording studio in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, where we were making Donnie records and I was making some other records. And I was about as happy as you could be. I just loved being in a recording studio. I drank a lot of coffee, I smoked a lot of cigarettes, and I was just extremely happy making records. And I talked about it with Dottie, actually, a couple of weeks ago. We were both saying that, I'm, I'm not saying it's the happiest part of my life, but uh-huh. I was I was very happy doing that. That just, you know, was not sustainable for an entire lifetime, but I am, am glad I did it then. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, necessarily great for uh, personal relationships maybe you know you know i i i was i was very single-minded and obsessed with making records and i and it also for economic reasons i mean people think oh my god you're a big producer you're you're making you're rich you know which is not the case uh you know so, it wasn't sustainable over a lifetime to support a family. Mm-hmm. And of course, I got sued, and that took a lot of money I was making to pay for the lawsuit. So, eventually, you have to make conscience driven change. And that's what I called it. You know, I mean, I was maniacal about staying on my path even longer than the other guys in the band. I just wouldn't give up the ghost. But at some point, I said to myself, you know, I'm not happy anymore. I'm frustrated. I'm not enjoying this anymore. Uh, I just making, re- I'm not enjoying music anymore. I wasn't enjoying playing live with the band because it was all tied to trying to get another hit. We had some frustrations with our record company. You know, we didn't think that you know, for a couple of the things we were putting out, they were, you know, promoting it as as heavily as we hoped they would have. Mm-hmm. So some of that was out of our control. And I just eventually made the change, you know, I was in my early thirties, maybe 31, 32 years old. I said, you know, I'm not gonna be happy if I don't, I was ready for something else. I was just so sick of the music industry. So before they would let me into law school, because my, my uh, lawsuit made me want to be a lawyer, I felt very abused by the system, mm-hmm. that you could do nothing wrong, and you could get sued, and I felt I was just funding lawyers and music experts being a part of this system, and I felt the system was flawed, and I just felt so vulnerable, I just thought, well, this could just happen to me again the next time I write a hit song So, and, and did nothing wrong. You know, I, I could just find myself sued. So I really felt I had to go to law school. I didn't go to undergrad right out of high school. I went to a good high school. I went to St. Ignatius in Cleveland. Just about everybody goes to college out at St. Ignatius. I decided not to because I wanted to just do music. Uh, so I had to go to undergrad in law school. So at the age of 32, I went seven years straight. And I supported a family while I did this as well. So, you know, it was uh, challenging, although I will say not as challenging as some other older students in that age bracket, maybe with families, because I was lucky. I did have some loyalties coming in. And I, uh, you know, I at least go to law school during the day, and which was much better than going to law school at night. And so I was lucky in a lot of respect and I, yeah. So then I got totally into school and my, my thirties were just totally about going to school. And then when I was 40, I became a lawyer. And of course I had to be all about law. So I've gone through different phases of my life where I just got into things. And now it's just, they, they kind of all work together. And now I teach as well. I've been teaching at Case Law School for about 17 years. So I speak all over the country about copyright law and some of the new music cases. So, you know, it it kind of all works together at this point.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned coffee earlier back. It sounds like coffee could be the uh, continuum there all the way through school, (laughs) being able to do all those things. Or just sheer determination.
2: I'm... I'm a pretty determined guy, you know, maybe to a fault, but I can get very single-minded about things. And certainly when I made records, I was completely focused and single-minded with a goal. And then uh, when I began to go to school, I, I applied that to going to school. And, uh, you know, now for really for the first time in my life, you know, maybe for the last couple of years and now I'm in my 60s now I I think I'm a young 60-something but I have probably a more balanced life you know where I enjoy my law practice and I'm still very involved and I plan to continue to be I enjoy teaching I enjoy playing so much with my guys I can't say I'm super obsessed with anything at this point I just kind of enjoy life and I enjoy the relationships with my family, etc., my girlfriend, etc.
0: Yeah, sounds like you're at a good place. I, I saw Donnie and the Cruisers, perform at the Moondog Coronation Ball a few years back. And yeah. it was really an electrifying performance. I mean, Donnie's still hitting those notes. The band seemed really tight. Are Now, you said you're performing here in, you know, I don't, sometime in the next few months. With the band, are you continually... Thinking about new music, or are you going through, you know, kind of a best of set list, or like, what's the mindset around the music these days?
2: That's a great question. I'll, I'll say first and foremost, the band has never enjoyed playing live as much. Donnie has become fully Donnie, and I, I don't know. I know what that means, and it, it just means he's he's really enjoying it, and. You know, he's seventy six, which may to shock some of your listeners, but he sings his ass off. He's never sounded better. He's fully enjoying himself. The older he gets and it's actually the cooler it is at this point. And we the band has never been better alive. We have the same band members. Our bass player, who is the only you know, replacement guy, Al Britton McLean was our original bass player, who was phenomenal. We're still friendly with Al Britton, but he went on to other things. He lives in Seattle. It's not practical for him to do these gigs. Paul Gall, who has been his replacement for like 25 years, is the only non-original member, and Paul is great. But Kevin, our drummer, is original, so is Marty Lee, our guitarist, myself, of course, Donnie. The band has never sounded better. We're so, we, we always are looking for ways to improve the show. I don't think we've ever sounded better live so our focus right now is on live. To go in the studio again would require myself making a commitment to write some songs and to really, you know, own the project and I'm not in a I'm not feeling it right now but it definitely could happen. We did a Christmas CD about I don't know 3 years ago, more, a little more I guess five years ago i think it's an outstanding piece of work i say that because not everything i do i think is an outstanding piece of work Mm -hmm. Uh, but we made that record the way we used to make our records lots of stacking lots of production it took probably a year and a half to make that record albeit we're not doing it full time but so it can happen we did spend a hell of a lot of time on this christmas record which is called hallelujah and um you know, I, if anybody's interested, I, you know, I encourage you to get that because it, it is a good piece to work. It's a really a twist on a traditional Christmas record. And so it, it's possible that we could do that. And, and it may happen. I've, I've been on my spare time this last year and a half. I've been writing a book, actually, not a memoir or anything like that. Nobody cares about that, but it's called where music comes from and who owns it. And it's, uh, Really, it's not a legal book per se, it's for lay people, but it's hard to describe. There's a lot of music cases out there that people hear about, and it really is the story of where sound came from and how humans organized sound over the millennia and how it evolved that humans at some point said, you know, I own this, and how you detect infringement Obviously, it's informed by my experiences in life, and I just felt the need to write this book. I teach at Case Law School. I didn't think that there was a a good enough book out there that explained my deepest thoughts about the subject, so I decided to write my own. And I speak before federal judges once a year. I teach them with Peter Minnell and David Nimmer, who are two copyright gurus, and I just felt the need to write this book so it's really substantially done and i've been spending my time on that once i'm done with that and that's on its way who knows Uh, you know donnie's always ready to go to the
0: studio if i am that sounds good news for all the fans out there yeah i i have yet to check out the donnie iris and the cruisers hallelujah album but i did have your christmas album from way back in the day and you've done what is it two solo how many solo albums have you done personally was it just was it the two well
2: I I was signed to see you know there was a point where I just had to kind of scratch the itch of do I want to do mm-hmm. do I want to try doing a solo I'm perfectly happy being the guy behind the scenes for Donny Iris uh, I was totally fulfilled by that because it was all about getting my creativity out and working with a guy mm-hmm. who was a good good guy who I loved And working, because I'm not really a lead singer, I didn't think. Uh, But I had some time one summer in the 80s, so I put together my own album, playing all the instruments in my basement studio, and I called it Cellar Full of Noise, which was named after a book about Brian Epstein, who was the Beatles' manager. I thought that was a cool title. So I put this album together, ended up getting it signed to CBS Associated at the time, a record label. They put it out. You know, nothing much happened. We did. I did a follow up that Donnie was involved in. So we did two albums, and then uh, as I started practicing law, I just, you know, felt this very need to still do something creative. So about the first two years I was practicing law, I would go home at night and have a few beers, and started. Playing all the instruments on this Christmas album you're we talking about, it was mm-hmm. called Planet Christmas. So that's out there as well. It's not easy to get. Uh, it's not really available. I really should get that available on Spotify. And if I could not be so lazy and find some time, I would. <laughs> I would do that. But I appreciate that you
0: you mentioned it. Yeah, it's it's a good one to put on the holidays in the background. So it's it's one of those nice ones. And it's so interesting. I mean, just listening to the career and the ebbs and flows. I mean, is there is there something that you're most proud of in your career or would you have to classify certain moments or, you know, what crystallizes when you hear that question?
2: Well, I guess, um, you know, I'm proudest that I, that I had the balls to follow my dream. I guess that's the thing I'm proudest of because it would back in the day I went to St. Ignatius, which is a college prep school. And my parents were great parents. I learned as I got into relationships over the years that not everybody had great parents, you know? And uh, I grew up lower middle class, not, uh, you know, certainly not with a silver spoon in my mouth. And um, my dad, my mother didn't work for most of our childhood, even though it might have benefited our family for her to work. My dad was a house painter and then, Became a mailman. So I had good parents who supported what I wanted to do in life. And, you know, when I went to St. Ignatius, it was always a foregone conclusion I was going to go to college right away. And I just got this music thing, which was, you know, a gift and a curse at the same time because I just felt I was being called to try to be a musician. That's what I cared about most of all. And, I didn't want to go to college because I felt like I was just going to end up betwixt and between. I was going to end up, what, a a teacher, which would have been fine, except that's not what I wanted to do. And or uh, some people said, oh, just go to college. You could be a music therapist. And I wasn't interested in that. There was only one thing I was interested in doing. That was becoming a session musician, writing songs, you know, doing that sort of thing. And I had to give it a shot, and that meant not going to college. That meant throwing myself into that, which was a risky thing to do because, you know, you're either going to be a bum or you're going to succeed. And so, um, you know, I always tell people you got to follow – Joseph Campbell, who, who is a scholar that I like, he's dead now, but he used to say he was a comparative mythologist, mm-hmm. and he would say you've got to follow your bliss, meaning the thing that really moves you most of all in life, you should, you should follow that, because the money will come later, and I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I started following my deepest desires. And it wasn't always easy. It really wasn't. I'm, I'm skipping all the challenges and the bad sure. parts. But, um, you know, you know, once you start following your heart, uh, of course, eventually, I had children. I decided i need money, and I had to go back to college, and I had to go to law school. But I never felt like I was abandoning my goal at the time. So once I began to follow my bliss, I was sort of like, I think of it as like a satellite in orbit and you're always then in that orbit. Mm -hmm. But if I would have made that decision years ago to say, I'm not following my dream. I'm just going to be a lawyer back in the day because that's how I'll make money. And I wouldn't be a musician. I don't think I would be happy and fulfilled today. And I'm not saying I'm I'm the happiest person But I I do feel somewhat fulfilled in my life that I, you know, I followed my deepest desires always.
0: Yeah, that's great. Because I I had a question about advice to aspiring musicians, and I think that completely answers it. I've always been dying to ask you this question. There is a line in Love is Like a Rock. And you know the line I'm talking about. <laughs> I I'm think not it, sure. you trust your lawyer. Or something? Exactly. Do you, do you smile every time that line is sung? You know, not really. <laughs> I don't I don't really
2: think of it that way because you know, when I wrote that song, I I had no idea I'd be a lawyer. You know, it was what? just a lyric and uh, I so I was fully engaged in what I was doing at that time and that it's like my life has chapters, and that was that chapter, and then I got into this other chapter.
1: Gotcha.
0: I, I don't, I,
2: I guess I don't, you know, maybe I should, but I don't.
0: <laughs> and another thing is interesting is we do this thing on TunesMate, we call it title title. So some examples would be in your catalog, you've got my girl. Is, yeah. Isn't that the highest charting song within Donny Irish and the Cruisers um, yeah, catalog? Yeah, right. And it's, there's it is. another song called My Girl by The Temptations. So, you right. know, you, you can't copyright, you know, the title of a song. So there's a lot no. of songs that are similar out there. So the current poll up is Phil Collins Can't Stop Loving You, Van Halen Can't Stop Loving You. If you had a vote yeah, for Yeah,
2: I mean, that, you know, that is <laughs> just common stuff. And. You cannot copyright a title. So, yeah, obviously we were aware when we wrote My Girl that there was this other song called My Girl. It's nothing like it. But we, yeah, you can't copyright a title. We were so heavily influenced by the Beatles, both Donnie and myself were. So you could see Beatles influences and in, in a lot of the stuff we did. We were just so so heavily influenced and admired them.
0: Yeah, well, the, the whole goal of our podcast and website is to expose people to music they have never heard before. So if they know My Girl by The Temptations, maybe they ex- they should explore My Girl by Donnie Iris and the Cruisers. So it's it's constantly trying to expose people to music they haven't thought of before. And if you had to, you know, you talked about The Beatles, but is that has been the... I guess, one catalyst that's kept you going through all these years. If someone were to come up to you and say, hey, Mark, I really want to get into Donny Iris and the Cruisers, is there an album that you would say you should definitely get that album because that's us?
2: I would say, you know, there's there's the first album, which Mm -hmm. is, is special to me because it was our first record and it was a labor of love while I was in another band. And just working at night on this, well, we realized over time was a special thing for us, you know? And so there's Leah on that. But I I would say, if I have to pick one album, Mm -hmm. I would say it's the King Cool album, which was our second record, which, you know, has, you know, My Girl was the highest charting, but it's really wacky. That was, we're talking top 40. I mean, there were, there were, that is not the, the most, identifiable song with us. We we have done mm-hmm. it live recently, but really on that record is Love is Like a Rock, mm-hmm. That's the Way Love ought to Be, Merrily, some other things that people more associate with our band. So I would say the King Cool album is, nice. is a good place to start. And if, you know, I would say first listen to Aaliyah, the single which is available on Spotify. And in fact, I mean, to your listeners out there, if they're interested in learning about Donny Iris' music, I would say just go on Spotify. There's the so-called Best of Donnie Iris that MCA put out a few years ago. That's you know what they considered our best tracks, mm-hmm. and that's probably a good place to start.
0: Awesome. Well, I want to be respectful for time. I appreciate you being on the podcast and sharing your story. Did you have anything else, anywhere else, our listeners should go to to check out more information about the band?
2: No, I would just say if you like our music, if you check it out, the band is still really great. We'd love to see you at a show. Playing the Roxito, December fourteenth and December twenty-first with Michael Stanley. We're playing in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, February first and February eighth at a, the Greensburg Palace. And there are some other shows in twenty twenty. Band is still really good. People seem to like us. We enjoy playing. So come on out and see us.
0: Thanks, Mark, for being on Tunes, mate.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Take care.